Thanks for praying for me for the meeting, the main meeting. And really, I'm excited about the thoughts. Part two of walking in the spirit or, or really last Sunday we talked about what it means to live in the spirit. And this Sunday, with the Lord's help, I'm going to share some thoughts about walking in the spirit. Paul says in Galatians since we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So there's two different things. So um, I'm really excited about sharing some thoughts that I think are going to help a lot of people just see um, the power of the Holy Spirit is going to help us see. It's awesome. Tom shared something with me uh, last Sunday. I think it was last Sunday. I just want to share what Tom shared. It was so awesome. About how, um, you know, I've always thought that when, when Jesus called Peter out on the water and, and the boat was sinking and Jesus came to them walking on the water and, and, he's, and Peter says, if that's you, Lord, bid me come. And I've always kind of thought that he took his eyes off of Jesus and saw the storm and, and then that's when he began to doubt and began to sink. But the scripture doesn't really say he took his eyes off of Jesus. We just assume that because it says he, he saw the storm. He saw the, the wind. And what Tom shared with me last Sunday was so awesome that he heard a brother share that what he believes the Spirit showed him was that, you know, that it was a violent storm. They almost, they were, they thought they were going to die. And when you're out on the ocean, you know, when you have really high waves and you feel like you're going to drown and the boat's going to sink, those waves get up really high. The swell of the waves get really high. And so what this brother shared with Tom, which I think is right on, is that, he believes the Spirit showed him that what happened really was Paul, I mean Peter, was walking on the water toward Jesus. And, and Jesus is walking on the water toward Peter and toward the apostles in the boat. And the swells were so big and crashing down that he lost sight of Jesus. He didn't turn away from Jesus, he lost sight of him. Man, the Spirit just bore witness when Tom shared that. I said, that's it. Because Peter was looking at Jesus. He was walking toward him, walking on the water. But when the waves covered Jesus and the spray of the water, he couldn't see him. And he got afraid because then he saw just storms and waves and wind. And so he began to sink. And so I think what, what that does for me is as God was teaching Peter, I'm here, though you don't see me. I'm here, Peter. I'm here, don't doubt. I'm here, even though you don't see me. And so, of course, immediately when, when Peter cried out, Jesus was there and said, why did you doubt? Don't doubt. And you see that in the life of Jesus after the, after the, uh, um, uh, the resurrection, too. I think I love it where in the 40 days, the book of Acts says for 40 days, Jesus would appear and disappear, vanish for 40 days with the apostles with the disciples and the apostles, after the resurrection, before the ascension. So 40 days, he would appear and disappear, the book of Acts says. What was, he, what, what was he doing? He had been with them for three and a half years. They had walked with him. They had seen him with their own eyes. As John says, we have seen the, the word of light and touched and handled it. And we ate with it. We slept with it. We heard it. We spoke, it, spoke with him. You know, we, we were with him. We saw him. And so what he was doing was preparing them for the reality that he would always be with them, but they would not see him with the natural eye. Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the world. So for 40 days, he would appear 
in, their, in a room, you know, they would just appear. And he would disappear. Or like on the road to Emmaus, he would appear and then vanish for 40 days. And what he was saying was, I'm still here. I'm here. I'm still here. Disappear. Next week, I'm still here. See? Next week, see? I'm still here. Even though you don't see me, I'm still here. Disappear again. He was preparing them for the reality that though we don't see him with our natural eyes, he is with me. He is with me. And then you see the apostles, after the power of the Holy Spirit comes, you see the apostles moving with great boldness saying, such as I have, I give to you. They knew he was inside of them. Awesome. So anyway, I just love that about the waves blocking Jesus. I think that's exactly what happened. I just bear his witness, witness with my spirit. And I do believe, saints, that just the awareness, just the awareness that Jesus himself is inside of you. Just that growing awareness of your union with him is the key to a growing confidence that he is able to live his own life through you. Just the awareness. This is not a hard thing. This is not a, a striving thing. It's a rest. It's a rest. Just the awareness that Jesus himself, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is really inside my body. As Paul said, know you not, your body has become the temple of the Holy Presence. Just a growing awareness that you are one with Him will lead effortlessly, effortlessly to a confidence that He who lives within me is quite able to live His own life through me. It's that simple. It's not hard. It's profound. We're talking about union with God. It's profound, but it's simple. It's simple. Feed on that, saints, feed on that reality that Christ himself lives in me. The apostles said it a hundred different ways. Christ in you is your hope of glory. Not your performance, not your good deeds, but Christ in you is your hope of glory. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And I shall, in that day, Jesus said, I, sh- I shall be in you and you shall be in me. When I finish my work, you will understand, he said, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And now I am in you and you are in me. Feed on that, saints. Feed on that. Stay right there and feed on that. Lord willing, I want to share some thoughts in the meeting about how to eat, how to spiritually eat. Because that's, that's how we are nourished. We eat. And just as in the natural, eating is a pleasurable thing. And we love to have, you know, that steak and baked potato and green beans and little cream brulee dessert. <laughs> See? What's hard about that? In the same way God, in the spiritual, has made eating of Christ pleasurable. 
Religion has, has cooked a stinky meal. <laughs> Religion has spoiled the dinner. James, yes. My mother used to say, what do y'all have with something? She says, ice cream and liver. <laughs> yeah. That's what she wanted to tell us how bad it was. You know, so that was religion's meal for us. Ice cream and ice, liver. Ice cream and liver. <laughs> That's a, ice cubes and liver. Oh, ice cubes. cubes. Ice cubes and yeah. liver? Yeah, nasty. That's nasty. Thing, <laughs> yeah, the whole thing's a bad idea. That's exactly right. I mean, that's exactly right. I tell you, God is so good. When we, when we pull away the, the, the wrong teaching that's out there and hear clearly from our shepherd, from our Lord, who says, come, come and dine. You know, he, he said, the Lord said, he who comes to him and believes on him will never thirst again and never hunger again. If we really understand what he did and understand the gospel and know him as he is, Jesus' promise is, if you come to me and believe on me, you will never thirst again and never hunger again. And yet, we have all this teaching in the body of Christ about hungering after God. And I'm thirsty for God. And I'm in a wilderness right now in my life. I'm going through a wilderness time where there's no water. No. If he is inside of you, how can any of those statements be true? You see? But we don't really believe that he's inside of us. You see? It doesn't mean we're not thirsty thirsty for God or hungry for God. What I'm saying there is that when you want a drink of water, it's there. When you want to eat something, it's there. See, that's what he meant when he said, you come to me and believe on me, you shall never hunger and never thirst. You hunger and thirst when you want something to eat and it's not there. You thirst, you're thirsty when you want something to drink and it's not there. It's not that you don't have a desire to drink and eat. That's what I'm going to share in there, that it's all about eating all the time. It's all about drinking and eating all the time. Thirsty for him and eating, but it's always there. You will never thirst you will never hunger. You want something to drink? It's there. Something to eat? It's there. It's like being on this awesome heavenly cruise. And there's meals already cooked everywhere. And you just get up and you're, I think I want a snack. And you walk over there and there's a buffet. <laughs> David said in the Lord there's a continual feast. A continual feast. That's, that's the reality that we have now in Christ. It's a fixed reality, a continual feast. And all of, and religion talks about, you know, hungering after God and thirsty for God. But they're saying it in the sense that you are thirsty and you don't have the water and you need to get to the water somehow. Or you're hungry for God and you don't have the food and you, want to, you need to get to God somehow so you can eat. That's wrong thinking. If Christ is inside of me, how can I be thirsty? If Christ is inside of me, how can I be hungry? If Christ is inside of me, see, but we don't see that. So we run around looking for the presence of God. We're the God chasers. It's bogus. Totally bogus. And it leads the the body of Christ down a path of emotion and fleshly pursuit and blindness because we're not seeing the unseen reality. 
you know, much like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. She could go home at any time. She had the ruby red slippers and she went through all this stuff. And she could have gone home anytime. There's no place like home. God was speaking through the Wizard of Oz with red slippers, speaking of the blood of Christ. Tap three times. There's no place like home. Believe. I love seeing Jesus in all the movies and stuff. Jesus said, if they will not preach the truth, the rocks will cry out. And if the rocks can cry out and and magnify him, I, I bet you anything, the movies can cry out. And the books can cry out. He's speaking everywhere. Creation cries out. If they won't speak about him in the pulpit, he'll speak about him. He'll speak about himself in the movie theater to the youth. He'll have J.R.R. Tolkien write a book that's going to become a movie years later, decades later, and talk about the mystery of Christ hidden in all these things, the Lord of the Rings. He'll have C.S. Lewis write a book about Narnia and years, decades later, have the right people make the movie and talk about another realm called Narnia. Once a king in Narnia, always a king in Narnia, while the preachers at the pulpit are giving you wood, hay, and stubble. God's speaking to the youth in the theater. He's awesome. Have these young people silenced. They should not be saying this. Hosanna, Hosanna, son of David. And Jesus on that donkey turned to those Pharisees and said, Truly I say to you, if these little ones were to be silent, the rocks would cry out. Awesome. You hear him speaking everywhere. He can speak through a donkey. He can speak through anything. The prophet learned that. I just love him. He's awesome. I still think uh, a lot about just laying my head on his chest. That's, that's really uh, become a big thing with me. Just when things overwhelm me and I just love to lay my head on his chest. So awesome. Lo, I'm with you always. Even until the end of the world. Peter denied him and, and forsook Jesus in, in Jesus' greatest hour of need. Even cursed and said, I don't know him. I don't know him. Afraid. And then Peter looked at Jesus and Jesus looked at him. And of course, Jesus had predicted this is what happened. Peter had too much self-confidence that he could die for Jesus and fight for Jesus and all that flesh. And then he just ran out into the darkness and just cried and cried. What did Jesus do? At the resurrection, he told Mary and Martha, tell the disciples and Peter, he named him specifically so he wouldn't feel like he was not included in that, that group anymore. And Peter, tell Peter, I'll meet them in Galilee. Peter went off fishing and pretty much just said, I'm a loser. I was with him for three and a half years and I couldn't even stand up to a, a little old lady that called me a Galilean and 
I was so afraid I couldn't even do that for him. And Peter's back fishing again, thinking he picked the wrong guy. I'm just not able. And then they saw someone on the beach. Someone on the beach, and they heard a voice say, Throw your net to the right side of the ship. Who is that? John says, who is that? And they had not caught anything all night, so they said, well, let's might as well try it. So they did it. And suddenly the, the water began to teem and splash with fish. And John remembered, oh, my God, last time I saw this, Jesus was in our boat. And John goes, my God, Peter, it's him. It's him. Peter threw his cloak off, the scripture says, and just dove into the water. Same old Peter. <laughs> he swam into the, the shore. And what did Jesus do? Did he say, did you confess all your sins? Did he say, in order for me to restore fellowship with you, Peter, you have to go through this confession? Jesus is on the beach cooking fish on the grill and fresh bread for Peter. Last chapter of the Gospel of John. He's cooking fish and bread for Peter on the beach. And Peter's like, I, I can imagine Peter all wet just coming up there and just collapse, collapsing on the sand and just saying, oh, God. You know, like with nothing, no words. Like, I know. I'm a loser. But Jesus knew what he, Jesus, was capable of if Peter would just let Jesus live through him. He loved Peter. And so um, he said, Peter, bottom line is you love me. And it's not because you first loved me, but it's because I first loved you, the scripture says. He first loved us, not that we first loved him. Peter was restored and he was Jesus' first choice to proclaim the gospel on the, on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit fell. It was Peter Jesus chose to proclaim the grace of God. Isn't that awesome? And we think we've blown it. We think we will never be used again. There's, there's terrible teaching out there that says, you know, if you blow it, you, um, you know, God has plan B for you, but you miss plan A. It won't be quite as good as plan A because you, you, know, you, you're, you acted immaturely or you, know, you, you blew it, you sinned, whatever. And, but he's got a plan B for you. It's not as good as plan A, but at least you have a plan B. And then you blow it again and he goes, well, then the teaching goes, well, you may have a plan C, maybe. I mean, that's what, how it comes across. You know, that there's no plan A, B, C. There's just you and God. And it's never too late. He's been dead four years, Master. It's too late. He's been dead, what did I say, years? I mean, four days. Yeah, he's been dead four days, Master. It's too late. No, it's not too late, Jesus. 
He stinketh. It's too late. No, it's not too late. We've got 5,000 people here with no food, and we've got to send them home. There's no way. It's too late for us to get all this food and, and feed these people. They got, we've got to send them home. No, it's not too late. What is impossible for man is possible with God. It's, it's you and him. It's you and him. He's not limited by our mistakes and our failures. I mean, that's, he actually has that all figured in. David committed adultery and murder. God knew that that was going to happen. Yet he used that to reveal himself to David and cause David to fulfill his destiny in God. God's bigger, bigger, bigger than we have ever imagined. He called David a man after his own heart. You know what that means, after his own heart? It doesn't mean, like some people teach, that he's pursuing God's heart. Like he's after it. Like he's, like he's running after it. No, that's not what it means in the Hebrew. A man after God's own heart means that he has a heart like God's heart. Like in Genesis, every tree produced fruit after its own kind. After its own kind. So what, what that phrase means in the Hebrew is that David thinks like me. And, and God loved that. Here's a man who thinks like me. He was zealous for God's honor. He boasted in God against Goliath. He was a man, though a warrior, he learned humility very humble man. When they were cursing him, remember David leaving the city and they were cursing him and throwing stones at him and his, his men wanted to slay these people that were disrespecting the king and David said, no, 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 let him, let him do it. Let him curse me. Let him throw stones at me. Perhaps God will see and show me mercy. In other words, he didn't, he didn't take the sword into his own hand. He let, let, he let God fight his battles. He could have killed Saul a couple of times, but he wouldn't. He refused to kill the anointed of the Lord. That's God's business. God's anointed him. God will take care of Saul. It's not my job to kill him. But he showed Saul that I could have Saul. I was there. Here's the piece of your garment. God loved that. God loved the way David looked to God. How he was a man who really was zealous for God's honor but he didn't try to honor God in his own strength. He knew he couldn't honor God. He also was a child in a lot of ways. He was very childlike. He would, you know, when they brought the ark, he danced in his underwear before God. And some of the ladies thought, they, they just looked at him and said, oh, look at David. He's showing off his body. They did. They, they were like, this is ridiculous. God, I think, struck one of those with leprosy because they were... Or made her barren, made her barren where she couldn't, God was not happy with that. God was happy with the dance. God was happy with, because it was pure. It was pure. It was like, he was just innocent, pure, dancing before God. And those who criticized, you know, God wasn't happy with. In that Old Testament, in that Old Covenant, to teach us, to show us. The childlikeness. He loves our, he loves our childlikeness. He loves our dependency on him. He loves... 
the fact that we are, the humility that he, that he works in us. He wants us to let that life live in us. That's who we are in him. And it is, it is who we are in him because we could never do that. We, there's no good thing that dwells in our flesh. But we've been created new in his likeness and that's who he is and that's what he is like. You can say, above, you can say about every believer, every born-again believer, that they are a person after God's own heart. Every single person. You know why? Because we've been created in Christ Jesus, created after his image. He has given you and I, all of us have the heart of God. We have been made a partaker of the divine nature. So as opposed to what religion would say, there's a select few people, the select group that really have a heart after God. And if you really want to be one of these that have a heart after God, then you need to really step it up and be holy or whatever. But the truth is, every saint of God has a heart after God. Or like God is what that means. Like God. And so that image of Christ that we've been made into wants to get out. And that's what walking in the Spirit's all about. And that's what I'm going to hopefully share those thoughts in the main meeting about what that, what that looks like and how that's done, what I've learned about that. And it's not like religion has taught us. It's not like men suppose. It never is. If you think about it, you know, it's never like men think. You know, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven does not come like men think. It's always not like men think. Because men think in a way that is natural. And the things of the spirit are foolishness to the natural mind, the scripture says. So the way God thinks is foolishness to the natural mind. But Paul says the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of men. And the weakness of God is greater than the strength of men. The weakness of God being the cross. It looks weak. The death of the Messiah looks weak. It looks like weakness that he would allow himself to be crucified. But the weakness of God is greater than the strength of men. It's awesome. It's just upside down. The way men think and the way God thinks just totally opposite. We can lay our head on his chest. He is with us. The power of the Holy Spirit that is inside of us makes real and makes available this access to Him 24-7. We are a people of two worlds, just like Jesus was. When He walked the earth, He was a man of two worlds. He was in this world, but not of it. Even so, we are in this world, but not of it, Jesus said. If we've been born from above, born of him, we are in the world. We're sitting here in Longwood, Florida, in this world, but no longer of it. We're children and a people of two worlds. Embrace that, saints. Embrace that. Because that's one of the secrets to walking in the Spirit. Is that we live not by that which is seen, but by that which is unseen. He is really inside of us. 
a growing awareness of our union with him will bring us effortlessly to a growing confidence that he who lives within me is quite able to live his own life through me. What you began by what you began just reckoning to be true, as Paul says, reckon this to be true, that he's inside of you, becomes more than just a reckoning, but a knowing. And also, we don't reckon in order for things to be. We reckon because things are. We don't reckon things in order that they might be. We reckon things true because they are. But reckoning is kind of the beginning. It goes from reckoning this truth to, about this truth to knowing that he's inside of me, that he really is inside of me. And you see, saints, why religious teaching about how sin is still imputed to you as a believer totally robs you of the revelation of union? That's the enemy's trick. See, the whole religious teaching about how sin is still being imputed to the believer and the believer needs to confess sin to get it cleansed, to get it off you, uh, keep short accounts with God, don't let sins accumulate, deal with your sins so you can have a free channel, restore your fellowship with God by confession of sin, get forgiveness, get cleansed over and over and over again. That religious teaching is robbing the body of Christ of an awakening. Of an epiphany that he is my life. Union has come. As Jesus is, so am I now in this world now. This is what causes the darkness to tremble. When they see this, we are doomed, is what the darkness is saying. When they see this, we are doomed. Keep them sin conscious, keep them sin conscious, keep them sin conscious. Even with the plain language of God himself, in this new covenant, I'll remember your sins no more. I will be merciful to all your iniquities. And thereby you shall come to know me. From the least to the greatest, you shall pierce the veil that has been up, that I have removed through the blood of my son, the Lamb who has taken away the sin of the world, and you shall know me. Covenant, the new glorious covenant in his blood. And the enemy wants to keep that from you. Because now you can go boldly to a throne of grace to find help and mercy in time of need, 24-7, 3 a.m. in the morning, 2 a.m., whatever crisis Whatever joyful thing that's going on, you're in a birthday party, you can go boldly into the throne of grace and say, God, isn't this awesome? It's not just the crisis we go to the throne of grace, we go all the time. You go right up to the throne and say, isn't this an awesome salad I just made? This is, God, isn't this awesome? You go boldly to the throne of grace and commune. He with you, you with him. 
That's what the prophet said would happen. The prophet said, the day's coming. He says, the day's coming. The prophet said, a new covenant is coming. A new relationship with God and men that is beyond our expectation, beyond our mind's way of thinking. Eye has not seen. Ear has not heard. It hasn't even entered into the mind of man what God is going to do. Now the holy utensils are only in that temple over there. The holy things are considered holy because they're in the temple. But the day's going to come, the prophet said, that when they're baking a cake in their kitchen, it shall be called holy. That the holy utensils will be in everybody's home, not just in the temple over there. You make holy, you make set apart. That's what that means, set apart. You are other. And in your kitchen or in your business, you bring the other. And everything you touch is holy. The feet, your feet touch and you make the ground holy. You make it other. Because of who you are, because of what he did, and because of who he is in you. You are holy and blameless. You are the holy ones, the saints, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Where you walk, you make holy by your presence because of his presence in you. He is the light of the world, and now you are the light of the world because he's inside of you. You go into a room and you can leave his peace, or the peace will return to you, Jesus said. You are holy, you are other. You are the sons and daughters of the living God with the authority of Christ. It's awesome. And religion and the enemy has tried to hide this from you. Keeping us sin conscious and keeping us flesh conscious and not understanding the way of God. The way of the spirit. The way of union. So awesome. Yes. Yes. Looking at pastors or leaders in the church worldwide as, as having, you know, kind of like the doorkeepers to God for us, that we have to go through them and then we listen to them. What they say must be right because they're pastors or they're teachers or they went to seminary or whatever. That's exactly wrong. That's exactly wrong thinking because... Um, you know, John said this. He said, you need no man teach you. That's the apostle speaking with boldness. He said, you need no man teach you. But the anointing, which abides within every believer, shall teach you and shall lead you into all truth. That's the apostle John saying that boldly. Now, he's not promoting an arrogance. He's not promoting, you know, believers um, who are not submitting to their elders or whatever or listening or being respectful. He's not saying that. But he's saying that You and I do not listen to men. We listen to the Spirit speaking through men. A child can hear truth and say, that's not true. I don't care if it's a pastor. I don't care if, you know, Paul was like that. Paul said, Paul says, look, I went to Jerusalem and uh, they added nothing to my gospel. He didn't do it like in an arrogant way, but he said, you know, it's not a matter of men it's a matter of the Spirit of God. And that is a big stumbling block. A lot of people feel like, I can't go against the leader because they're saying this. But what's cool, what's happening in our generation right now is that the leaders are saying good stuff. Yes? When you said that, the concept I have is that like, we were trained to think that there are plateaus or steps to get closer to God. But that's wrong. It's, it's not like we have to do something to get there. 
That's exactly right. That's exactly right. There are no, there's no stairway to heaven. There's no, yeah. Yeah, there's no steps that you, you know, that's, that's, that's flesh thinking. You know, that if I do this, I get closer to God and so forth. Once again, if you see union, then that teaching just falls apart. If everybody's in union with Christ, then that teaching just falls apart. Really, the, the gifts that God gave, that Jesus gave the body, the apostles and prophets, evangelists, teachers, those gifts that God, that Jesus gave the body of Christ, they're really at the bottom holding up the body of Christ. As Paul says, the apostles are the least. The apostles are like, you know, the, the scum of the earth almost, he says in one of his letters. You know, we, we serve, we spend and be, are, are spent for you. There are gifts to the body to, to feed, to equip, to strengthen the body for the work of the ministry that the body might do the work of the ministry. See, it's not like the other way around where the, you know, Jesus said in the world, the greatest among you are the ones who has authority over more. He says, it shall not be so among you, but the greatest among you shall be the servant of all at the bottom, holding people up, encouraging people to see him, to see him. Make disciples of Jesus, not make disciples of men. So by the Spirit of God, we make disciples of Jesus, holding people up, teaching, encouraging apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, so that they're equipped. And then they get a mod, they model, you model for them being a servant. So they too, you end up producing servants. But if you have this pyramid where the top, the pastor's at the top, and he has, he's the greatest because he has more authority over, guess what? All these people that are trying to reach the top, one day, bless God, I'm going to have my own church, and they're going to wash my car. <laughs> Stuff like that. And that goes on. Bless God, I'm going to be a pastor one day. I'll have my own church. I'll have my own private parking spot. Pastor only. Yeah. That kind of stuff. But if you have, I believe the apostles, you, I believe you could have walked into a room with the apostles and wouldn't even know that one of the apostles was there. I think he was probably, if you didn't know what he looked like, I think you could have walked into a room when John was there with the saints and you wouldn't know which one was John. It wouldn't be like somehow flashy or, you know, everybody's bowing down to him or whatever. It was just, he'd be just like one of the saints, one of the brothers. And, you know, you say, which, which one is John? Oh, that's John. That old man over there? And then you go see John, who's about 80 years old now, and, and you just look into his eyes and... You just melt. Jesus himself just looking out through his eyes. Full of compassion. Probably a long story. You know, the enemy, uh, the enemy really worked. His, I, I tell you one thing, I'll say this, and we'll wrap it up. I, I know, I, I really believe this. One of the enemies coup d'etat moves, one of his best moves was in about 300 A.D. when he took this simple covenant meal of bread and wine which was to remember Jesus by and his work. And he turned that covenant meal into a sacrifice which is what the word mass means. Mass means sacrifice. And invented the concept of transubstantiation, which is Roman Catholicism, which says the bread and the wine only by the hands of a priest 
literally become the body and blood of Jesus. And then we offer him up again and again and again and again. That was a, a mark of genius on the part of evil. Because he couldn't dispel the truth of Jesus himself and his, his death. So what, he would, so what he did was, we'll just have him die again and again and again and again and again. He, the enemy took away the finality. The finality of the work of Christ. For Christ is not to die often. He died once, and now he ever lives. That was a huge, huge deception that has spread even to the Protestants to this day. We're just not as, as hardcore about it, but we still say we have to confess our sins and stay in fellowship with God. That's the remnants of that deception hundreds of years ago from the darkness. You, saint, are about to break free of that totally. Amen. In this generation. Lord, thank you so much for the reality of Christ. To live is Christ. Oh, Father, thank you so much. We lay our head on your chest. Abba. Papa. Papa. Amen.